This morning we have the pleasure of opening God's Word again, as you do every week, and it's indeed a, a privilege, it's a, it's a blessing. It's also a, a daunting task to not only preach the Word, but to hear it and to see how it changed our lives. And so this morning as we open up Colossians again, Colossians chapter 2, uh, our prayers that God may bless his word to us and that we may respond to his word in obedience as we live by faith. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 1 of this chapter, although this um, really starts at the middle of Paul's account of his own ministry to the church uh, at large, not only at Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. May God bless us this reading of his word again today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again that we are in your presence and before your open word and our prayers that you may grant us the understanding of your word and the wisdom to see how it applies to our lives and a committed heart to obey your word. We pray that we will not let your word be taken for granted to ourselves, but that we may see it being effective in our lives day by day. We pray for those who hear your word today, who do not know your son as their savior, that by the very preaching of your word, the reading of the word itself, may draw them to you, to him, that they may find eternal life. We pray for your blessing upon us now as we further wait upon you. In the Savior's name and for his sake alone. Amen. Although I read from verse 1 of chapter 2, our sermon this morning, which has a title of Christocentric Living, uh, will really be dealing with verses 6 and 7 only. Uh, and you will soon see why this is the case as I go through the sermon. But Paul's, Paul ends the account of his ministry in the gospel in much the same way as it's ended every other division in his letter. As I said, we start the reading from the very middle of Paul's account of his ministry. As he said, he filled up the suffering in Christ as he ministered to the church throughout the Mediterranean coast. And he comes to the end of that in verse 5. And he ends it in the very same way, much the same as he ended every other section in this book. We've gone over this repeatedly. And I think it just bears noticing because it is significant how this particular epistle has been put together. The end uh, on the phrase that leads to the next section, and that's how he has done it consistently. The phrase in chapter 1, verse 2, from God our Father, leads into verses 13 to 14, which deals with the work of the Father in salvation. That particular section... Uh, in, in verse 14, ends with the phrase, the kingdom of his beloved son, which immediately leads into that magnificent section on the preeminence of Christ from verses 15 down to verse 23. In verse 23, he ends the section on the Christological hymn, as is so often it is termed, with this phrase, of which I, Paul, became a minister, speaking about the gospel, which leads into his ministry to the saints in the gospel, which he covers in chapter 1, verse 24, and then finishes chapter 2, verse 5, where we read this morning. 
this pattern of finishing one section on a phrase that sets up the theme of the next section has been consistent thus far in this epistle. And Paul continues this pattern as he leads up into the next section of this letter, namely verses 6 to 7, which we'll see serves a very specific role at this point, at this juncture in his epistle to the Colossian church. Paul ends the account of his ministry in chapter 2 verse 5 by expressing his joy at seeing their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. He's speaking to the Colossian church and he's addressing them and highlighting certain features of the church in this letter. His purpose is to deal with a growing concern of false teaching that's making its way into the church, and he's setting the church up, preparing them so they may deal with this. And we end our last sermon right here in verse 5 of chapter 2. We pointed out last time in the sermon that the terms good order and firmness were military terms denoting the orderliness and the steadfastness in the face of opposition. You said that he uses these metaphors to try and bring out a, a point that has got deeper meaning. And those two words are, are used elsewhere uh, to refer to a military orderliness and uh, uh, resoluteness in the face of opposition. And so he uses that right here again of the Colossian church, uh, acknowledging that they are orderly and standing firm. While this sense of his word speaks in a positive light of the Colossian church, it doesn't say all we need to know because he does say this in a very specific way. As Paul turned his attention to the Colossian church, he rejoiced to see the good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. As far as their general condition as a church, their, their conduct encouraged Paul. He was encouraged to see this firmness and good order. They did not appear to have be, they did not appear to be a significant problem from within the church, as for example we have in the Galatian church, to whom Paul says in Galatians chapter one verse six, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The Galatian church had a had a problem which was developing developing from within the church and Paul had to address that. That is not quite as significant in the Colossian church, where they are seen by Paul's own words to be orderly and firm in the faith. Neither does he see this uh, as he does with the Corinthian church, where he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you. So there wasn't this kind of disorder within Colossi. Colossi seems to be a reasonably well-balanced church. Uh, and by contrast to the other churches, Paul doesn't see or doesn't address a, a particular uh, problem, issue within the church that's causing uh, a problem as with Galatia and with, um, a, with the Corinthian church. By contrast, Paul was free to express his joy in seeing the good order and the firmness of the faith of the believers at Colossae. Were they a perfect church? Absolutely not. There's no such thing as a perfect church as long as a church is filled with imperfect saints. If you think that you have come to LHBC because you, this is a perfect church, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, there are those amongst us here who do live exemplary lives, but there are many more who have a lot that needs to be corrected. And so none of us are exempt from growing in sanctification as we recognize that no church is perfect because we who are in the church part of this body we are not perfect in chapter 3 we will see that Paul's instruction to them to put to death that which was earthly in you so there are some problems he needs to deal with and he will deal with that later on in the chapter but for the greater part they were a church who were consistent in the faith this can be seen from his instruction for them to continue walking in Christ and that's going to be really the central thought of our sermon this morning. Continue implies that they were already doing it. He doesn't say start to walk in Christ. He doesn't say it's about time you walk in Christ. He says continue to walk in Christ. This brings us to the two verses we will consider this morning. And they are, verse 6 and verse 7, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. These verses act like a hinge between what has gone before, from verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, up until chapter 2, verse 5. This acts as a, these two verses act as a hinge, as a transition, as a point of, of transition between those former chapters and what happens in the rest of the book. And these verses do this in two ways. Number one, it transitions out of several theological points in the first part of this epistle. Paul has laid down several theological points in the opening chapters, in the opening chapter of this book, and the first part even of, uh, of this chapter. He, he lays out for them teaching that's going to uh, remind them of who they are and what they are, because this teaches them to stand in good stead when it starts dealing with the problems from verse 8 of chapter 2 onwards. And so he transitions out of several theological points. For instance, he speaks about the work of the Father who has qualified us, qualified them, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, chapter 1, verse 12. We are brought into an inheritance that is unique, that is uh, supernatural, and is provided for us by the Father. And he reminds them that it was the work of the Father to do that. Uh, he tells him in chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, the unique role of Christ in both creation and the establishment of the church. Uh, we, we went through that over a number of sermons, uh, this wonderful preeminence of Christ not only being the firstborn of creation, but being the firstborn from the dead. And we drew together how both in the creation of natural things and in the creation of the church, Christ remains the supreme head, authority, and source of all things. We were reminded also uh, about the revelation of the mystery that Christ indwells both Gentiles and Jewish believers. And so Paul uh, has taught all of that, and he's in a transition out of the, out of the wealth of that theology, wealth of that teaching, and he's going to start taking them down a road of practical learning so that he can... Uh, cause them to be prepared to deal with things that's coming their way. Number two, this verse also serves as a summary for most of the rest of the epistle. The central thought in verse 6 and verse 7 focuses on the continuity of their walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. That is the central thought of the verses this morning. But the continuity of, what, of, of that walk is dependent on certain things. Number one, that they reject the human traditions attempted to make inroads into the church. We'll see that when we get to chapter 2, verses 8 to 23. The continuity of the walking Christ depends on, number two, second point, that they make deliberate adjustments in the way of living, putting to death that which is earthly and putting on the new self. We will see that when we deal with chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. And number three, uh, that they are seen to live out the new life in the right relationship with others, at home, at work, and in society. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 3, verses 18, to chapter 4, verse 5. And that briefly is a very high-level um, outline of the rest of the chapter. Uh, but chapter, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 kind of takes us into that. It hinges between the theology and brings it into practical teaching, which Paul applies not independent of the theological base and doctrinal base. We, he never does that, and we should never do that. He hasn't gone to trying to get them fixed up first before he got their, their hearts sorted on the teaching of the word. And so turning to verse 6, we find we are confronted by the word, therefore. This is going to resonate with you ladies, right? Because you learned something this week which you thought was a profound hermeneutical tool. When you are told that you must, when you see the word therefore, you must see what it is there for. It may sound trite, but it is important. It is true. When that word appears, it doesn't just appear because it is trying to be a filler in the line. It takes you back to something which has already been said and taught and takes that and then points you to what comes after the therefore as drawing those two together. So we have to know what the therefore is there for. And this word directs our attention to what has gone before. There are things that Paul has brought to their attention in the preceding verses that now have bearing on what they are required to do. In other words, 
because certain things have been made clear already, the following is required to take place as it takes them through verse 6 and 7 and then after the rest of the chapter. In their case, they had received considerable teaching about the faith and therefore they were required to continue to walk in the Lord by that faith. The command, so walk in him, can also be stated as continue living in him. And I will be using those phrases interchangeably this morning because that is what it means. The walk, uh, the term walk is often used in scripture as being analogous of the way of the Christian living, a Christian's lifestyle. The way we walk, uh, which is not referring to a physical walk, but referring to our walk with Christ, our walk in faith, and it's analogous of the Christian life. So, in what we have they received, Christ Jesus the Lord, that is what he says in uh, that verse, uh, therefore as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. The answer to that question takes us to the first point of the sermon, which is this, the requirement for living in Christ. And going what Paul has said in the preceding verses, there are at least three requirements that are included in the receiving of Christ. He has used that phrase, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Uh, that doesn't just stand by itself. Uh, in fact, that phrase, that clause right there, Paul already gives us a clue as to why the therefore is there. Often we have to search for that, but he gives us a hint. And we know that what, uh, you know, we know that receiving Christ the Lord has already been covered in chapters one, chapter 1, verse 1, right down to the end of the chapter. So the first um, requirement is that we respond to the gospel in faith. The gospel has been brought to the Lycus Valley by Epaphras. He shared this word of truth with those of his fellow countrymen, uh, his community, the place we had lived. He had become a believer. And so we are told in chapter 1 verse 7 that Epaphras comes back to the Lycus Valley, comes back to his hometown, uh, preached the gospel, and eventually there's a church established uh, where the gospel is preached and where souls are being saved. They heard the word of truth, the gospel. They were brought to a measure of understanding of the truth, of the truthful sharing of the gospel, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. They responded in faith, chapter 1, verse 4, and they were saved. And so this has really taken place, and we had the record of that in chapter 1, verse 4. And Paul says, therefore, what has been teaching up here, teaching up back here in chapter 1, has implications as to what I'm going to say about having received Christ Jesus as Lord. We have here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 4 to 7, a simple and clear unpacking of the process of the coming of coming to salvation. Someone is sent with the word of the truth. Someone else hears the word. And the light of what they, in the light of what they hear, understanding that they are required to respond to the grace of God, they respond, and this has, the response is to believe in Christ Jesus as Lord. Epaphras came with the gospel, he was sent, he preached the gospel, they heard the gospel, they recognized in the light of the gospel that they were sinners, needing redemption, needing salvation, they responded in faith, and the only way they could respond, the only way they had to respond, the only legitimate response to the gospel to change it was belief in Christ Jesus, the Lord. Believing and responding to the gospel in faith is essential for receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord. Without that belief, you do not receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. If you are not saved, you cannot and have not received Christ Jesus, the Lord. You may think you are saved, you may think you have a relationship with him, but you do not. You need to be saved before he can be your savior. That seems to be kind of redundant. But many people think that he is their savior, but they've never been saved. And so they're living in a delusional state, uh, which will eventually cause him to end up in hell. This uh, sequence of events has to take place uh, through the preach of the gospel, which leads to salvation, is clearly laid out in Romans chapter 10 where the same writer, the Apostle Paul, writes to the Roman church and says in verse 14 of chapter 10, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless, some, unless they are sent? Think Epaphras. 
That's a clear description of what Epaphras did. How are they to preach unless they are, they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. And this is important just because a gospel is preached. And just because you have heard the gospel and perhaps several times. And because you have sat under the gospel, perhaps not, uh, not only like this, but perhaps in a home where your parents or your family are, are believers and you've heard the gospel consistently, you think you've been sitting under the gospel just because you hear the gospel doesn't automatically mean that you obey the gospel. That is something you have to do in faith. As the gospel reveals to you how much of a sinner you are, you need repentance. That's what happened to the Colossian, the Colossian church as Epaphras was sent to preach the gospel to his hometown. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and you hear it through the word of Christ. And we know this to be the case that the only reason why the Colossian church existed was because they had believed the gospel and so come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. And so they had received him. And because of them receiving him, Paul's going to tell them exactly, on the basis of that, what their life needs to look at. And just I just want to close out on Romans chapter 10 for those of you who are not saved. For those of you who do not understand what it means to be saved, I think it's important that as you sit this morning and maybe thinking for the first time that perhaps I'm not saved, though I thought I was, in this very same epistle, uh, chapter 10 of Romans, the previous verses to what we just read, says this in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, this term, Christ Jesus the Lord, and Jesus is Lord, proliferates our sermon this morning. And it is essential to understanding the gospel and to being saved because of the gospel. Because unless Jesus is, becomes your Savior and your Lord, you cannot claim to be truly a saved uh, child of God. Uh, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the ultimate outcome of the gospel being preached, of your heart being softened by the gospel, of the Lord giving that, that heart, that person faith to believe, of opening their eyes to their sinfulness and to their condition. And as that person in that condition, that state realizing that they stand sinful before God, to whom they need to be reconciled, and they call out for salvation. Romans chapter 3 says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. The first requirement for receiving Christ Jesus as Lord is that you must be saved. Without being saved, he's not your Lord. You've never received him. You remain alienated to, the, to him, alienated to God, outside of that relationship with God, and you, have been, uh, you remain irreconciled until you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. The second requirement, and Paul has touched on this in chapter 1, and he said, therefore, and I'm referring back to what he has spoken about in chapter 1, because that carries into chapter 2, 6, and 7. The second requirement is that for, for receiving Christ Jesus the Lord is a changed citizenship. You need to be changed completely. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says this, and we've gone over this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're back on the subject of salvation. We're back on the subject of being changed. And in this case, not just being saved, so being changed from a sinner into a saint, but you've been changed from the citizenship of being under Satan and now become a citizen of the kingdom of his beloved son. And because you are now no longer in darkness but in light, you are able to respond to him and you are able to recognize him as your Lord and your Savior. You have to be able to, to you have to be a citizen of this kingdom of this son, so that you are able to claim that you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. It's only those who are in the kingdom of the son who qualify to receive Christ Jesus as Lord. 
Many claim to know Jesus. Many claim to believe in Jesus. Many claim that they had, that they had accepted Jesus, a term we may unpack at some other time. But unless God has taken you out of the domain of darkness, a work that's done by God alone, and placed you in the kingdom of his beloved son, you will remain darkened in your understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the, ign the ignorance that is in you due to the hardness of your heart. Ephesians 4 verse 18. Unless God changes you, you won't be changed. Unless Christ uh, saves you, you will not be saved. Not by works, not by money, Purely by the work of Christ. And there's a third requirement that Paul has touched on in chapter 1. And he says, and it's this, that the third requirement that Paul reminded the Colossian believers about was that they had to be reconciled to God. This means that because of the dying of Jesus, they are now able to be presented before a holy, righteous, sovereign God and not be consumed. Chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. Paul has covered all of these things and he's telling them, therefore, these things that I remind you about, these are the things that qualify you to claim that you have received Christ Jesus as Lord. In chapter 2, verse 6, Paul takes all of these various elements of salvation into account when he says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, that this is the basis for that, that, receive, that receiving of him. They received him because they received the gospel. They received him because they received the citizenship. They received him because they received the blessing of reconciliation. They had received Christ Jesus the Lord. This is a clear declaration that Paul is addressing a group of people who are saved. He wasn't just addressing a group of people who thought they were saved. We have raised this question before in some of our discussions. Who is included in a local assembly like this? Well, we know that a church like this um, is uh, populated by both those who are truly saved and those who are not saved. And we do not know the hearts of people. So some look saved and some sound saved. And so we assume they're saved. God alone knows their hearts. But the church like this um, has both saved and unsaved in our midst consistently, continually. And the Lord knows who are his. But when Paul writes to the Christian church, he knows that he's directing his words to those who are saved. Those who have received Christ Jesus. He identifies them as recipients of his epistle. Paul's purpose in this epistle is to steer the Colossian believers away from the false teaching that is centered in human philosophy and empty deceit. And to do so, he directs them to, this, to, to be centered in Christ Jesus. That is what he's going to be telling them from this point onwards. They, they need to be centered not in themselves, not in human traditions, not in empty philosophy. They need to be centered in Christ Jesus. And for this reason, Paul uses the proven outcomes of the gospel in their lives to strengthen their defense against false teachers and their false traditions. Paul is reminding them of who they are, of what they are. Therefore, they are fully prepared, fully equipped, fully qualified to not only deal with, but to resist the, 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 the impending false teaching because they have received Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus Christ, the Lord. This is a very specific phrase in this particular uh, epistle, uh, but it encompasses both of what, I, what he said about him being not only the Lord, but that we also receive him as Lord. The effectiveness of the power of the gospel was a reality in their lives, chapter 1, verse 11, because of the preaching of Epaphras. The gospel has been effective in producing fruitful lives lived by faith in Christ Jesus, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. They had once been practicing evil deeds, but now they had been reconciled to God because of the death of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. But even though the work of the gospel was obvious among them, Paul does not leave them without a warning. He exhorts them to continue in the faith, stay stable and steadfast, not shifting from the gospel that they heard, chapter 1, verse 23. That brings us to the next point in the sermon that they continue living in Christ. Not only are there certain requirements that make it, it qualify you to be in Christ, but they need to continue living in Christ, which is stated by Paul as, so walk in him. Receiving Christ Jesus as Lord is only the beginning. Now I say that, uh, understand that it is a huge beginning. Receiving Christ Jesus as Lord is not a small thing. It hasn't covered a small cost. It hasn't come as though it was something you could pick up in a, 
at the pick and pay and pay all your fee and walk away with it. It is significantly huge and uh, unable to be fully expressed, but it is only the beginning in our living in Christ. This is just the first step into a life lived by faith in Jesus Christ. We have the example of Epaphras, who was not content with just being saved, but lived a life dedicated to prayer on behalf of this very church. His prayers was that they would not be static in their faith, not just remain where they were when they were saved, but that they would grow to maturity with assurance in all the will of God. That is recorded for us by the Apostle Paul in chapter 4, verse 12 of this very epistle. Paul himself was not simply satisfied with being saved on the Damascus Road. And that was a phenomenal, miraculous change. I mean, that salvation in and of itself was unique, where Jesus Christ himself, after he had risen and ascended, appears to the Apostle Paul and turns a man who was uh, murdering those who walked in the way, he turned him around 180 degrees, and this man became the Apostle Paul, whose Writings we read this morning, and who has been the means of God reaching the church with truths that are invaluable as we live in Christ, walking by faith. Paul himself was not simply satisfied with being saved on the Damascus Road. He lived a life dedicated to preaching the gospel. He reminds this church that he has suffered as he fulfilled the stewardship that was given by God to him. Chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. Receiving Christ. It's only the beginning of continued living in Christ. You and I have received Christ, and now we are resting on our laurels. They say, well, we are okay because we've got a ticket that doesn't expire. That ticket is called once saved, always saved. We are okay for now. That's a dangerous position to place yourself in. Yes, we all support, uh, we all are, I should rather say, we all believe and are encouraged and enthralled by the fact that having been saved once, we will never be lost. But that does not give us the right or uh, the authority to say it is all we need. Receiving Christ is only the beginning to continued living in Christ. It is this that Paul was calling the Colossian believers to when he commands him in chapter 2 verse 6, so walk in him. The sense of walking is really that they should continue living in the way that they'd learned to live since receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. They'd already learned what it meant to be in Christ. They now need to continue to walk in that way by the same means, that is, by faith. Therefore, just as they'd received Christ, they now ought to continue living in Christ. But what does it mean to walk or to live in Christ Jesus the Lord? We say that. And it sounds so good, and we acknowledge it, but what does it really mean? This brings us to our third point, the attributes of living in Christ. The Colossian church is not given the option to walk in the Lord. They are commanded to walk in the Lord. It wasn't as though Paul was saying, well, if you feel good today, perhaps walk a little bit more in the Lord than you did before. Or perhaps start walking him, and if you can keep it up, continue until such times you're tired. It's not an option. It's not a request. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. It's a clear command. So, walk in the Lord. Not only is it a command, it's an action required by them to be done on a continuing basis. Not to, they are not to walk in the Lord only when they gather together as a local church. And sometimes we think that is all we have to do. Come together once a week. Maybe every second week, maybe once a month, and that indicates how much I'm walking with the Lord. That is an indictment if that's all we consider to be what walking the Lord means. Or only when we feel this is required for a special occasion when we get together and so we walk with the Lord, we're living with the Lord, we are among the saints. Walking the Lord is to be a day-by-day occurrence, every day, all day. It doesn't leave us. We are never in a space where we can take time out. We don't have a recession that we can step out of while we catch our breath. We're not able to go into a corner and have a pity party because the Christian life is so hard. We can't go somewhere and say, can I have a break from this hard life which calls me to live for Christ and 
decide for, th- for things that honor Christ. This is something we do every day, all day, every moment of the day as we live in the Lord because we have received him as Lord. This may sound like a daunting task, and it would be unless certain conditions were met. In fact, it would be impossible, it would be an impossible task if the person's walk was devoid of certain attributes. And Paul identifies three attributes essential for walking or living the Lord. Attribute number one, to walk in the Lord, you have to be rooted in him. Now, that metaphor almost requires no explanation, right? When I say something is rooted in it, in something, you understand almost immediately what that means. To be rooted means to be planted and secure, immovable under adverse circumstances. The picture that immediately comes to your minds, I'm sure, is Psalm 1, right away. For the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that it does, he, in all that it does, he prospers. What's the contrast of being rooted, to being planted? The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. There are some things that has to be noted about being rooted in him. Firstly, this rooting took place prior to the present command to walk in him. Paul doesn't say to them, now that you walk in him, start being rooted. They are already rooted so that, that they are equipped and enabled to walk in him. This rooting took, this rooting took place pre, prior to the present command to walk in, in, the, in, in, in him. The believer has to be rooted so that he's able to walk in Christ. Secondly, having been rooted, the, effect of, the effects of this rootedness continues at the same time as you walk in Christ. As you walk in Christ, you do so by being rooted in Christ. Those two function together. You don't do the one without the other. In fact, without being rooted, your walk is going to be a, not only a difficult one, it's going to be impossible. And thirdly, the believer does not root himself. He has been rooted. Roots keep plants anchored in the ground, and the plant is not blown away. This is the intention of the metaphorical contrast in Psalm 1. The tree planted by the rivers of water stands, but chaff is like wind that gets blown away. That, that, that stark contrast is indeed meaningful in this case where we, we poor cause the saints to be rooted firm. Roots are the means by which plants get their nourishment and life. Without being rooted in Christ, we have no life. Without being rooted in Christ, we will never be nourished. That's where we are. That is the one in whom we are rooted. A rooted believer is a stable believer, a well-nourished believer, adequately, adequately equipped to continue living in Christ. There is an a, a example of this in a, another metaphor, which we call a parable, and I will read you the account quickly from Luke, Luke chapter 8. You all know this parable. You know it well. It's the parable of the seed. But there's a, there's a section which I think brings in exactly what I've just said now about being rooted, about being nourished, and about being stable as uh, Lord Jesus Christ unpacks to his disciples the meaning of this parable. Uh, Luke chapter 8. Uh, because this word root uh, is not used often in, in the scriptures. Uh, the analogy is clear, but it's just nice to know that uh, we have a clear understanding of what it means. And so Jesus Christ um, explains the parable of the soils to his disciples, and uh, he says to them in uh, verse 6, he speaks about the sower went out to sow the seed. He speaks about the seed that fell on the path. He speaks about the seed that uh, fell on the rocks. And then he says, And some fell on the rock, and it grew up, and it withered away, because it had no moisture. If you go to Matthew and you go to Mark, the word there for moisture is the word root. And some fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and healed it a hundredfold. The whole point of what I'm trying to make is that even in this parable, we see the clear analogy that the rootedness not only offers uh, being anchored, but being uh, receiving nourishment through moisture. Well, this obviously speaks about the opposite. Well, they were not rooted. 
And because they were not rooted, they eventually give way to earthly desires. So, rootedness uh, speaks about us being not only stable and embedded in that which is solid, but that we are well nourished. It's not hard to see that if we are rooted in Christ, then we are both stable and nourished, spiritually speaking, and able to continue walking in him. Attribute number two that's required for us to be enabled to walk in him, as Paul commands us. To walk in the Lord, you have to be built up in him. Paul moves from a farming metaphor to an architectural metaphor. In Acts chapter 2, verse 20, verse 32, we see that he speaks about being built up by the grace of the word. So we ask ourselves, how are we going to be built up uh, to continue walking uh, a life that is in Christ Jesus the Lord? Being constantly in the word is essential to being built up. That is what we see from Acts chapter 20, verse 32, where Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders. He speaks about him going away and he encourages them that they should be built up by the word of grace. Um, and as he speaks about that, he speaks about how they should be uh, established and rooted uh, because of the word being effective in their lives. Being constantly in the word is essential to being built up. Sporadic feeding, whether privately or corporately, will lead to spiritual malnutrition. We cannot spend too much time in God's word, whether it is year as we gather corporately, or whether it's you and I at home, in our private, private uh, rooms, in our, where we ever spend time reading, meditating, contemplating. We need to be fed on the word of God, that by being fed on that word, uh, we become established, we become strong, uh, we become built up, and as we're built up by the word, uh, that continues to empower us to live uh, a life that is pleasing to him as we live in him. So not only are we, must we be rooted in him, by him, for God does the rooting, and not only does God do the building up as we feed on his word, God does a third thing, third attribute. To walk in the Lord, you have to be established in him. And the sense of this word is that of being firm, of being grounded. To be established is, uh, is to be grounded in the faith, not your faith, in the faith. Paul has spoken about this earlier in the epistle where he says in chapter 1 verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been preached in all creation under heaven and of earth, and under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister, it reminds him that the stability and the steadfastness and the lack of shifting and the establishment of their walk is based on uh, being established in the faith. Rooted in Christ. Built up because of the word. Established in the faith. The faith is that, is that body of truth that we uh, obey, that we, that we subscribe to as uh, believers, as Christians, so that we can be fed, edified, encouraged, admonished, and it is that which gives us an understanding of how, how we are established, not in our own strength, but established because God does that establishment in our lives and all of our lives by us being obedient to his word. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 9 says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, which is what Paul is going to get into with this particular church from chapter 2 verse 8 onwards. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So we need to be strengthened. We need to be established. God does that for us when we remain in his word. These attributes would not have been unknown to the Colossian believers because they had already received teaching on the subject. Chapter 2 verse 6. They were not left to figure out for themselves. They had the privilege of being taught by others of whom Epaphras is the most notable. We've said that several times today. That Epaphras not only went home to preach the gospel and see souls saved, but he stayed home so the same souls could be edified through his ministry and they then knew what it, what it meant to be rooted, to be built up and to be edified as they continued to walk in Christ. 
But it also receives teaching from others sent by Paul to the church. And this is important to realize that every one of us has a role to play as God is placed in this body. So that as we share with each other that which we have been gifted with, we cause the church to grow. Uh, this establishment of, uh, of, our, of, our, of our faith, or of the faith, it comes about as we are involved in doing just that. Uh, in the same book, at the end, we will read that not only did the Paphras edify them, but so did Tychicus, who was one of them. And, of course, our old friend Onesimus, chapter 4, verse 7 to 9. They also went back to edify the church. So it's important to understand that walking in Christ Jesus the Lord, living in Christ Jesus the Lord, is not something we do without a, without a considerable uh, surrounding of, 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 of godly intervention that makes this walk possible. Paul doesn't say to them, here's your life, walk it, you're up to yourselves. He does, he says you have, ex- you have a full spiritual toolkit from which you can draw day by day as you live in him day by day. The very message that this pair, Tychicus and Onesimus, and Onesimus brings to the Colossian church would include the example set by Paul as he continued steadfastly even while being in prison. The teaching on being rooted, built up, and established was not new material to the church of Colossae. They'd heard it before. They just needed to be reminded of it again, as you and I need to be reminded of these things constantly. Do not grow tired of hearing from this platform, from whoever preaches from this platform, repeated truths. Never say we're hearing that same old truth again. Can we not move on? from that particular teaching. It's the repetition of these words from, this, from the scriptures that cause us to not only grow in our faith, but to realize that our rootedness needs to remain there, that, our, that we are being built up more and more into an edifice that is significant, not the church being built up, but we as individuals are being built up, and that we be, are, remain established, firmly planted because of the word, which we preach repeatedly, taking effect in our lives. So what is, the, uh, what is the final outcome of walking in this way? There is an outcome. What is the outcome? Abundance in thanksgiving. This is the fourth attribute that is, inter- that is an integral part of continued, of continued living in Christ. I'm, I'm pronouncing all my syllables. Sorry. This attribute has been slightly separated from the first three by the clause, just as you were taught. Paul reminds them, the things I've just told you, you were taught. You know these things. I'm reminding you of things you already know. The first three attributes, being rooted, being built up, being established, were things they would learn as part of their growth in the faith. But thankfulness, even though it is as much part of the continued walk as the others, unlike the others, it cannot be learned. You do not learn to be thankful. While each believer walking in the Lord would be the recipients of being rooted, of being built up, of being established, Thankfulness is an attitude that the believer has to actively engage in out of a heart that recognizes that the life I am enabled to live in Christ, the walk I am enabled to walk in Christ, the rootedness that I have in Christ, the being built up in Christ and being established in the faith, that those things have come about in my life, not because I have done anything, not because I deserved it, not because I have any merits that warrants this. Not because I'm better than some other person in the world. Not because I'm not as bad as the guy next to me. None of those things are true of our lives. Every one of us has been born the same way in sin. And even though we are now saved, we still live in these bodies of sin. And Paul's going to remind them, when we get to chapter 3, about putting to death these earthly things that continually uh, is pervasive in these sinful bodies. But all of that, uh, taken into account, still does not diminish God's work in our lives. As he has faithfully poured in that which he alone can give. And because he has given that to us by grace, through faith, we need to be actively engaged every single day with thankfulness. Not just being thankful, but abounding in thankfulness. This is something that will not be done unless you do it. Someone else can't be thankful for you. We express thanks on behalf of other people. We are thankful for people's lives. We are thankful for those who are walking Christ and examples to us. 
We are thankful those who are living out this life in Christ in such a way that they practically serve everybody in the body. And we thank the Lord for them. But each one of us has to be thankful for what God has done in our lives. Because as we are abounding in thankfulness, it takes our eyes off those things that will detract, distract us from this walk that we are walking in Christ. Thankfulness needs to abound from a heart that recognizes the blessing, the privilege, the joy of having, receiving, of having received Christ Jesus the Lord and being enabled by the grace of God to live continually in Him day by day, moment by moment, challenge by challenge, catastrophe by catastrophe, disillusionment by disillusionment. Those, those are things that's part of our everyday walk. And Paul knows it. Paul has said that to them already what his life looked like. And if we've gone through that portion of Acts chapter 20, where he speaks to the Ephesian elders, he tells you about the devastation in his life by others, and how even at that point, he says, I'm going home, but I'm expecting to, to be put in prison and to be persecuted. He knows that. And yet, in the midst of that, having reminded the Ephesian elders that they would be uh, built up by the preaching of, uh, by, by the word of grace, he reminds the Colossian believers, despite your circumstances, you need to abound in joy. Is it a huge task? Perhaps. Definitely, if you do not have Christ, you cannot be joyful in negative circumstances. But those of us who are saved, those of us who have received Christ, those of us who have been rooted, those of us who are being built up, those of us who are established, being established, it's us who because of the faith in Christ and because of the work of the Spirit in our lives as the Word of God becomes effective in our life, it's we who need to be abounding in joy despite the circumstances around us. Paul says to them, as he prepares him to get into dealing with uh, the errors that's coming into this church, and highlighting some of their shortcomings, he said to them in one short sentence, as it transitions from theology to practicality, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. For we know that without your word, we cannot be established. Without your word, we cannot grow. It's because of your word making inroads into our lives and having brought us to salvation that we can claim to be rooted in Christ, that we're being built up in him. And because of this, we pray that your word may so invade our hearts and our minds and desires that as we walk with him day by day, as Paul commanded these believers, we may do so abounding in joy. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen.